Shrinkwrap Radio number 855. Dr. Dave interviews Dr. Kirk Honda about his very successful podcast, Psychology in Seattle. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. Dr. Kirk Honda is founder and host of the very popular and successful podcast, Psychology in Seattle. He's been podcasting almost as long as I have. And he recently let me know I'm one of his heroes and said he'd like to interview me. I'm very impressed by his own podcasting accomplishments and let him know I was eager to interview him. Originally, we thought we might combine them into a single interview, but then I realized his work demands its own focus. Now, here's my interview with Dr. Kirk Honda. Dr. Kirk Honda... Welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Hearing you say that phrase, I've been listening to you on the podcast for almost two decades. It's so bizarre to actually be talking to you as you're uh, saying those phrases. Welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Yeah. Well, last week you inter- interviewed me, and I thought you did a terrific job uh, giving me space to share my personal and family saga. And uh, you were very generous in your praise. And uh, I'm so impressed uh, by your podcasting accomplishments that I worry our audience might suspect a backroom deal of quid pro quo, <laughs> one hand washing the other, so to speak. But I have to tell you, I am just generally uh, so impressed by by the work that you're doing and all that you've accomplished and it, it's miles away from what, in some ways, from what I was doing and attempting. And um, so I want to start in an area that where there's no comparison. You wrote me that as of 2023, the podcast and YouTube channel have grown to include over 3,000 episodes, 330,000 YouTube subscribers, and several paying members on Patreon and YouTube. And beyond this, each week you publish a three-hour-long video, oh no, audio, episodes about, and about a dozen 20-minute videos. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, I was gobsmacked by this. I mean, I thought uh, my initial reaction was a bit suspicious. I hate to admit being so suspicious, but I figure, okay, 
he must have he must have used black hat techniques and purchased uh, you know purchased likes, which is possible to do, or at least it used to be. And um, but as I dug into your site, it became clear to me that that's not what you had done, but that in fact what you had done was delivered great content, really addressing people. Um, you know, I realized it was a lot of passion and a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. Harder work than I'm willing to do, at least at this point in my life. So I was really impressed by that. Mm-hmm. Well, hearing that from you is really quite a thing for me because you led the way. You were the uh, biggest psychology podcaster, the first psychology podcaster for you know a, a long, long time and still are making amazing uh, episodes. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a workaholic, which is kind of a problem. Yeah, I could see uh, that. That definitely would make sense that that yeah. would uh, lurk in there somewhere. And yeah. I know that the, as the show has grown, you've brought other people on, and I listen to sample episodes just to get a sense of who each of those folks are, good friends of yours from your, mm-hmm. your past. And... Um, but I got this. I still have the sense that it's very much your show, you know. Mm-hmm. E- even if they're on, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely your show, your conversation. Uh, it's a very firm imprint there, and so mm-hmm. to me, that kind of fits with what you're saying uh, about, uh, you know, that that uh, that you you really own it. I think, and you need to own it, and it's it's had a wonderful wonderful effect i mean that's Mm -hmm. that you know i was looking for the magic sauce and i realized wait a second that is the magic sauce is your your devotion to this Mm -hmm. um for a time you let me know that your numbers were languishing you'd been doing it for for some years and Mm -hmm. uh, you weren't seeing this big boost now i note that you have a your ba was in business Mm-hmm. So, so I'm wondering, did that come in handy? Did 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 you do something? Did you change something up that led to this big sort of kick up that later came along? Possibly, Possibly. yeah. I didn't know what to get my bachelor's degree in when I was 18, 19 years old, and I just decided on you and I. Uh, have a similar background there. We started out as engineering yeah. and then switched and uh, you switched to creative writing and I switched to business because my older sister had, uh, you know, she's sort of a mentor in college for me. And so I just did what she did. And I th- thought, well, business acumen can be applied in a lot of different sorts of jobs. So I thought, I don't know what I want to do, but I'll take this. And yeah, uh, I, uh, sort of specialized in marketing. And then you and I also have a similar background in market research and focus groups. And uh, uh, I don't remember it being directly used by me when I was uh, trying to get the podcast off the ground. But, you know, marketing is a big part of having a successful business of any sort, and including an internet business, particularly an internet business like a podcast. What I was struck by as I as I got into your site, among other things, uh, was 
Wait a second, what's just popped up here on my screen blocking my view? Um, the topics that you took up, and uh, you, you've indicated that topics sometimes were straight psychology stuff that you'd planned, but also that you began to get into uh, things that were going on in the world, in the news, on social media, etc. And so you took, which is something I've never done. I, I've never uh, felt comfortable doing that. But you were comfortable diving in and really putting a lot of devotion and effort into speaking to people's questions so that it became really sort of psychology for the people, if you will. Mm. And, and that really impressed me. And it, and um, you did it with such earnestness. For example, one of the things that I was drawn to, and I couldn't, exp I want to ask you more about this, about topics and so on. But uh, one that caught my interest that I, was the slap at, at you know at uh, at the Oscars a couple of years ago or last year however long it was, and you really dug into that and you did a whole bunch of research on apologies and the process of apologizing, and you read the literature on apologizing and then you decided that the literature was incomplete as far as you were concerned and so you came up with your own. Uh, schema for apology. You added some other elements that, that the literature had left out. I mm -hmm. thought that was remarkable. And mm -hmm. it, it was a, uh, such a genuine thing for you to do, such your own genuine engagement and willingness to invest your time and energy and creativity and thoughts and all on that. And it, not a rote thing. I feel like sometimes... Um, mine is fairly rote because I'm interviewing a person and, you know, I've got whatever material they've provided me with and that's what I do. Mm -hmm. But I don't go do a lot of outside research. I don't invent new theories, etc. So I was just so taken by that. Talk about a bit about that process and that part of you that does that and at what point did that begin? Oh, well, I'm honored that you would see that and summarize it. I've, no one's ever summarized it like that. <laughs> and everything you're saying is like, yeah, I guess that is how it <laughs> it, it is. Um, I am, I love to get into projects. I get really obsessive about projects. If it is something in the house that I want to fix up or something on the podcast and uh, apologies is a, I discovered over time in my clinical work is a really big part of mental wellness and relationship wellness mm -hmm. that is not emphasized enough. Uh, a really heartfelt, good apology process can repair just about any transgression in a relationship, mm -hmm. not only between my clients in my office, but from me to them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of repair and healing that can happen when I apologize to a client. And then I started getting a lot of requests. A lot of what I do on the podcast has to do with people asking me to do things. And when the requests reach a certain critical mass, then I'm like, oh, maybe I should actually do it mm -hmm. <laughs> because I, I don't know, I just feel obligated that way. And so I started to somewhat 
specialize in analyzing public apologies from Donald Trump, from Bill, Bill Clinton, from Chris Brown, uh, these individuals, and and uh, as you're referring to Will Smith. And um, I wanted, I didn't see on the internet, on YouTube, a uh, satisfying discourse around the uh, reactivity to public apologies. There were, there was a lot of talk and a lot of it's valuable, but nothing that was research-based and, you know, psychologically based in, in the literature. And so I wanted to bridge that gap. And when you say psychology for the people, that's just a huge compliment from coming from you. And it is maybe what I am doing and have been yeah, doing. Yeah, I, th I think I think that's that's kind of your your trademark. And I'll give you another example because I'm not so interested in going deeply into apology into the yeah. apology topic as you are wont to do. But also uh, another one that caught my eye was, uh, and I didn't recognize the name, but I guess it's a famous case of a woman who who. Uh, what, she drove her car into the water and drowned her children? Do I have that right? I've, uh, I've forgotten the details of the case. Well, Casey Anthony was charged with killing her child, her, I think, three-year-old child. And we did a whole series of episodes on that. Um, but uh, But yeah, so we talk about things like that as well. Um, I often will have my co-host Umberto on the podcast talk about things like that because he knows a lot about those kinds of stories, those kind of public figures. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, so people contact you, they express some interest. Uh, do you have a discussion board or someplace where they, where they uh, post their questions and then you accumulate them? Yeah, so on Patreon... There's a community area. Sometimes I'll take okay. a poll. YouTube, there's a lot of comments there. And then people just email me as well. Yeah, yeah. So from their, their comments and the, the kinds of requests, some of the dialogue that I encountered between you and your audience showed a high level of engagement mm. and, and that they really... Uh, the. I think they just felt like they can ask for what they want and mm -hmm. that they're going to get a good opinion from you. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's remarkable. I'm not sure if anybody else is doing that. I think it's pretty unique. Um, and Well, let me ask you, Dr. Dave. Yeah. When, when you're talking into the microphone and you publish the episodes, don't you do it because of the listeners? You, don't you do it because people enjoy listening to your content? Sure, yeah. sure. But and wouldn't it be nice to have a back and forth with them, like some kind of, to no, feel I, that? I, yeah. yeah, I don't want that. See, I, I'm oh. I'm ready. I'm one and done. Okay. Okay, I put, I put it out there. I, I don't want a lot of discussion. Maybe I'm, Maybe I don't want to get into... A controversial area, maybe, maybe they will disagree with me, etc. And yeah. I, I just, I'm sort of a, I do it and I move on. And that's yeah. more, that's my personality 
as compared to your personality, which I see is just, you know, really working for you and working for, for, uh, for your audience. Have you done any formal surveys? I know, I know I signed up in the early days with various, uh, organizations that were trying to monetize. And so I thought, okay, I don't want to be chopped liver here. I'll see if I can make some money, although that's not what motivated me, me to become a podcaster. And um, so I was affiliated with Pod Show. I, met, I mentioned in uh, Adam Curry in, uh, in our, the interview that you did with me, and he started something called Pod Show, brought in some other people, and it was... Uh, the, the slogan was quit your day job. And that seems, you seem to have been able to quit your day job, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and really focus on your podcasting. Uh, I certainly wasn't you know, through Podshow or any of the other things I became affiliated. None really kicked me off to that degree. Mm. So what, uh, are there other episodes or topics that, come to mind that are good examples of what we're talking about other uh, for the people sort of topics yeah yeah uh well uh people are asking me today and yesterday to comment on jonah hill he is a, an actor and he is implicated as being abusive to his former girlfriend she published a bunch of texts, text exchange between her and him, I, I think, if I understand the story right. And people, uh, it's a it's a huge uh, news story in a certain uh, subsection of our culture, and uh, they really want me to comment on it. Yeah. So um, I will be doing that later today. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, part of the reason why I don't do that sort of thing is um, I have difficulty make up my, making up my mind. I mm. can see both sides of, yeah. of an issue. And, you know, that's, that's in part, that's, that's kind of my gift as a therapist mm -hmm. is to not, you know, not have big judgments. My but people wife, want that. I think it could be, that's why they do want that. Right? Yeah, that, because it's so rare to, to yeah. have that, that sort of compassion and, tentativeness to judge uh and uh, i'm not appreciated by most people on the internet most people that come across me don't like me because i, I mean that's my impression anyway because i'm either boring to them which is probably more likely but if uh, i'm not boring then i piss them off because i don't take a side and uh they think that i'm um I'm siding with the other side because i'm not siding with their side but they don't know that i'm not siding with either side and uh, yeah, uh, in the beginning, when I first started to gain notoriety a few years ago, uh, I would have a real mixture of reaction. Now, I have a core audience that know my thing and yeah. appreciate that that part. You could absolutely do that that sort of thing. Yeah, except it's not in me to do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I... I, I just don't tend to get that kind of clarity. Um, yeah. Well, because you and I know that things are way more complicated and we get the opportunity to go deep with people and discover new right. things and, and, right. and nuances and 
how things uh, uh, germinate, how things uh, develop, triggers that people have in context. So that voice is needed on the internet. I agree. I agree. And certainly your uh, your good evidence of that kind of, kind of proves that. I think in psychology slash psychotherapy, uh, people perceive us as a bit mealy-mouthed, you know, that, oh, you guys never come out and say what you're really thinking or what's, what's really going on. So you're going against that trend, and uh, I think it's, it's a great decision. Now, it puts me in mind of uh, hugely successful podcasters, of which there are a few who become very commercial. I'm thinking of Joe Rogan is the first name that comes to mind. Yeah. What are your thoughts about Joe Rogan? And uh, would you want to be like him? Would you no. want to? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I don't know that much about him. I remember listening to his podcast when it first started, when it was just him sitting on the floor with a friend and smoking weed. And yeah, it was I, just I didn't kind go of. back that far with him, but. Yeah. And it was just, it was kind of like hanging out with your friends and at late at a party and they're getting high and they're just sort of talking about UFOs and philosophy and they don't know what they're talking about, but they like talking and there's nothing wrong with that. Then it developed into what it is today. And I, I've only seen little clips, but, um, you know, uh, but no, I, um, in terms of content, I would never want to go in that direction. You know, he has his audience and he does what he does well. But uh, I learned last year that I had reached my uh, limit regarding how famous I wanted to become. I'm not famous, but I'm, you know, mildly, smallly famous, I guess. And I became more famous last year because I was watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and there was a lot of media coverage around that and a lot of attention, a lot of audience. And I was attracting a whole new group of people. Yeah. And um, that's when I realized that more uh, attention and better marketing, if you will, was actually detrimental to my mental health. I uh, was being attacked, you know, in the way I was talking earlier, because I wasn't taking either side because I'm watching a trial and I don't know who's right and wrong. I, I hear both stories. And so I would comment from that place of expertise i'd say well when i hear that in my office it can mean this but i don't know and i sometimes people misremember or they lie and da 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 and so um people on both sides because there were um, pro amber heard people there were pro johnny depp people and i was pissing off everybody every everyone a, a large group of people hated me there were campaigns on the internet to get me delicensed they they complained oh, really? to yeah. yeah, they complained to the licensing board and actually tried to get my license uh, removed. Uh, it was unsuccessful because their allegations were ridiculous and the licensing board saw it that way, thank goodness. But but I didn't like that at all. I uh, it was uh, I was losing sleep. Oh, I, yeah, I can imagine. I would. Yeah. yeah, and when I turned on the microphone to make content, I was scared. I didn't feel safe. Right, I, right. I, That's... I didn't want to say anything. I was just like I was I was tripping over every word because I was worried that someone was going to I mean, people are sending death threats. There were oh, people that man. were, uh, you know, uh, making veiled threats about my family and stuff. And and it was um, 
not where I want to go. So I have been actively trying to maintain whatever sort of level of of market share, if you will, <laughs> moving forward. Yeah. I, I don't want it to get any bigger. Yeah, interesting, interesting. But I fully understand the reason why as you explain it. And, uh, you know, you're, uh, turns out you're a sensitive guy and uh, that stuff gets through to you. you. Some of the other people out there don't seem to have any sensitivity and just blunder ahead, you know, and make make public statements. It's clear to me that you think, you, you, your opinions, you think through. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would raise an ethical issue here that uh, that the ethics of um, of APA uh, and maybe both APAs, I'm not sure, suggest that we should not do any analysis of people that we haven't seen privately in therapy, mm-hmm. and you are venturing beyond that area. Not technically. I, I'm a huge stickler for diagnosing from afar and the Goldwater rule. I never diagnose from afar. People sometimes think I am because they don't understand diagnosis, you know, because I might be using it. I'm always using it as a jumping off point. I'll say, well, it kind of looks like this. That would be my first hypothesis if yes. I were to be hired. But I don't know because it one, I don't have enough information. And two, it's unethical for me to diagnose from afar. I'm I'm a huge stickler about that. And I I do I have heard that you know it, that you're doing it with care, and and you know you're putting out possibilities. Yeah, yeah. And so I I get that part too. Um, and you know along those lines, um, over the years, because I'm a huge stickler for ethics. If you're you know if if you were one of my supervisees, you would know that I am annoyingly a stickler for ethics and, and law. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why exactly. I think I'm just like a rule follower or something. And so, well, well I actually, I saw that you've written a book. I didn't realize that you didn't mention it before, but you've written a book on supervision. Yeah. And uh, I went on Amazon and got what I could, you know, looking at how people seem to be reacting, what they had to say about it and all. Mm, I haven't read those reviews. I should read those. (laughs) And and you share, uh, as I began to, uh, they let you read little bits and pieces. So I was able to kind of read your intro Hmm. in which which you share that you felt uh, you had a a bad supervision experience where... uh, the person basically suggested that you shouldn't be a therapist at all, ever. Vamoose, you know, get yeah. out of the, get out of this program, and um, and yet your way of responding to that really was to turn that shit into gold, if if I may say so, by really a, by first of all, come wrestling with it. And then going after it in terms of your own spirit and and sense of rectitude in the world, you know, and challenging it intellectually and on substance. And so, you know, you really turned it around to as with the as with the earlier example of, of apology and slap and so on mm. is is you developed your own 
template for good supervision. Mm-hmm. Which and, and supervision, that's yeah, you're it's always been such a sticky area in my mind. And I also felt burned by it at one point. I had a, a there was a, um, a primo placement at the University of uh, Michigan when I was in graduate school there. And there was, the primo placement was called the clinic, the clinic. <laughs> and the, the lower rung one was the counseling center. Well, I was led into the counseling center, and, uh, and the, so that's where I did a bunch of my early, so got supervised early on. It was a big experience. But somebody who, I don't know, I got feedback from one of the, the big-time favorite supervisors who was an advanced graduate student, and uh, basically, she said, uh, I was a mediocre therapist and, and would never be anything more than that. Hmm. And and that was not based on much. I think she read a report that I wrote or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and as you, you know, here I was a naive kid of, what, 20 maybe, something like that. And... Uh, just trying to find my way. Yeah. Uh, so, so that stuck with me all these years. That's in the back of my mind, you know, just that, oh, never be anything more than mediocre. Yeah. Uh, awful. And, and yeah, so it's, a, it's an awful, so we, so supervisors have so much power. Yes. They, they have the power to move ahead, not move ahead. Get advanced in the career, not get advanced in the career, and often there's a conflict of interest in that situation, like, mm-hmm. like they're they're making their living by, you know, they're part of a, either a clinic or a a uh, training program, you know, that they make their money, etc., and. Uh, and some, somehow it's just, it can be, it can feel weird, you know, it can feel weird. I, I just remember how weird it felt. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there's a, a lot of issues there. So I'm just impressed that your response was to stand up for yourself and to write an important book. Yeah. And to help, and to help stake out the ground. And that's really admirable. Well, it took me 25 years to get there because <laughs> I can believe it. Uh, uh, when he told me that uh, I was fired, and you know, for context, I had just I was 25, 24, and I had just started my first internship, and the internship only, at that point was only like five weeks long. So I had been a therapist with clients for five weeks, right, and. Right. And what he was basing his uh, termination of my internship on was just our conversations. And um, I I sensed danger every time I talked to him that I had to meditate even before sitting down with him because I didn't know what what why I felt afraid of him. 
I later learned it was because he was out to get me, I think from the beginning, he just didn't like me for, I don't know what, I mean, we could speculate. I did confront him 20 years later and, um, he kind of apologized, but he he admitted that I was his first supervisee. He didn't know what he was doing. Is basically okay. What he so was he felt insecure and was uh, thrashing yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, and he talked uh, about the agency was kind of going through a big drama chaos problem, and he thought that maybe I was caught up in that. I don't know, but I left that uh, agency that day uh, totally demoralized, thinking, okay, well. Uh, because you know, I, I identified as a as a jock, as a frat guy. You know, I I, I didn't identify as a, a a therapist sort of person, and no one saw me that way. You know, I uh, wasn't one of those individuals where everyone just th- considered me. Oh, you got to go to Kirk for advice. You know, certain people are like that, right? Yeah. And and I wasn't like that, so I just thought, well, uh, imposter syndrome discovered because I'm an <laughs> imposter because they just oh, discovered I'm an imposter. They just fired me. But after five weeks, how how the hell are you supposed to know? Anyway, I drive to my university, and one of my professors was there, and he uh, talked me down and said, um, "Yeah, it, this happens sometimes, and this doesn't mean that you're a bad therapist. It just uh, now, if you get fired at your next internship, then yeah, maybe you're a bad therapist. But <laughs> get another internship, and you know, usually things work out. We don't know; time will tell." And I was like, really? So that's an option? Because I thought that the program would get rid of me as well. And so I got another internship, a totally different supervisor. And um, we had a great relationship. She uh, still a friend of mine. And then another professor at the university um, just took me on as a mentor and said, um, you should be a professor uh, right after graduation. Like, So wow. I graduated at 26 and uh, started uh, working as a professor right away. Um, not because I want to do, but because he saw something in me, which was totally bizarre to me to this day, really. <laughs> and and then the rest of my career, everything was fine. You know, I never had another problem with another supervisor and never had another problem with a, an employer. It was just that first one. And, you know, uh, God bless the person, the professor that, um, you know, said, no, like, don't give up. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we've opened up such a uh, uh, an area here that <laughs> it's not what I had on on as I was thinking. Uh, as a, let's talk about your, uh, you know, one of the things that's at play here is money. What what are your where does money fit into your value system, and what are your core values? Well, I've always just considered money to be. Uh, means to an end, right? The uh, having and, you know, being an American and indoctrinated into our materialist culture uh, means that I can't get away from that bias and that valuing of money and the hoarding of money and the buying of things and having fancy things. I can't uh, get away from that impulse, but I um, fight against it all the time. Um, I want to provide for my family. I want to, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I also give a lot to charities. We're giving away a scholarship actually right now, a $3,000 scholarship, which essentially 
uh, me just giving away three thousand dollars to somebody you know because oh, it's just yeah. me it's i don't represent a giant corporation you know so uh every year we give thousands of dollars to um needy students wow. graduate students who are making a difference in the world and so um you know i uh want to create something one day i, I want to create a foundation me and my wife actually where we uh, for free train young parents with attachment and with their relationship you know if, if they have a romantic relationship S because research shows that with a little training with a little intervention some classes some help that it sets up uh, an environment at home that will lower the likelihood of drug abuse in the children divorce in the parents crime crime in the children um uh, relationship uh, uh, will their relate the child's relationships will improve moving forward. You know, just all sorts of positive outcomes that research shows. But there's and there's some efforts and some funding around that, but not enough. And so um, that's another thing that is a is a dream of mine to do. Yeah, and that's I I asked you about what are your core values, and it sounds like there's a lot rolled into what you've been saying, uh, but. But if uh, let me ask you that question again, though, what do you see yeah. as your core values? Well, my core value has always been trying to make the world a better place. Okay. Um, I don't know if I am, but I'm. I know I'm trying, and so that's what I think about as soon as I wake up in the morning. You know, when I talk about Will Smith or Jonah Hill or Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm. I'm genuinely trying to make the world a better place depends on what I'm doing. But like with the Jonah Hill thing, I suspect that what I will be trying to do is validate people who have been abused, you know, because people will see these texts that Jonah was send, sending and it'll remind them of maybe the abuse that they went through. But I'm also trying to help the perpetrators. Uh, people out there will often contact me and say, uh, by listening to your content, watching your videos, I have discovered that I am abusive to people in my life or to my partner. And the way that you talk about perpetrators, although you don't let them off the hook, you do have compassion. You do have uh, a rare voice on the internet that doesn't just label and reject, you know, Yeah. Uh, because I have treated many perpetrators in my life, uh, in my office. And so um, they will... Uh, tell me that they will begin the road to healing themselves and, and addressing their behavior themselves so that they don't abuse anymore. So th that's why I do it. That's that's the only reason why I do any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, I think one of the things that triggered my, my question about money uh, is probably a little sour grapes on my part. There's some kind of a uh, uh, service or feature that I didn't know about uh, where I guess people can where you can create a short video what's it called this this thing you talk about it on your show you can create a short video by request I guess and oh cameo cameo yeah what is cameo because I was totally new to that and your you listeners can, would your listeners would love it if you were on Cameo. I just know it. I would like it if you were on Cameo. So what people will do is they will um, pay whatever fee you set, you know, and 
they will request like a happy birthday or happy anniversary or something. And usually it's a family member. So um, someone, uh, one of your fans will have a, a spouse that knows that you have cameo. And so they'll buy a cameo from you. And then on their birthday, it's like a, a minute little happy, you know, they usually will tell a little bit about the person and you, you just sort of ad lib some sort of happy birthday thing. And then uh, maybe a heartfelt message of some sort. And then it, it's really great. I've received cameo, you know, people will get cameos from famous people for, from, for me, like um, NFL football players or other kind of people <laughs> that, that I am fans of. And I tell you, like when I get a cameo from someone, even, you know, they don't know me, but it, it, it feels like they kind of do for, for a minute. Huh. And uh, yeah, it's just a, a great way to feel, you know, you, you bring uh, joy to people, people cry. I have proposed, someone asked me to propose to their partner over cameo, <laughs> <laughs> which was, I mean, just mind-blowingly an honor, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's another way to feel connected. You know, I don't make a, a living off of Cameo, but, um, you know, I guess I set a, a fee so that uh, I don't get too many requests. Maybe that's why <laughs> I kind of set the the price a certain way because. Yeah, uh, it seems a little high to me. I thought, God, there's no way that I could ask somebody for a hundred bucks for me to talk to, to them for a couple of minutes. Uh People, you know, they'll, they'll, it's a common thing that people pay for. Uh, it, it sounds bizarre and it did in the beginning. And when, so Cameo, I, I didn't, Cameo reached out to me, the business reached out to me and said, you should wow. be on Cameo. And I was like, uh, I don't think anyone wants that from me, <laughs> but, but I, I'm usually like, well, you know, let's give it a shot and see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, I probably get a Cameo once every couple of days or something. So, you know, it's not frequent. Um, but I get a kick out of it. You know, I'll sing a song, I'll write a song about them. Uh, cause I, I can write jingles and, you know, play on piano and, and yeah. guitars. Nice. So it's just a fun little, um, fun little thing. Uh, you know, I, if you did it, I guarantee you that, uh, people would want it. And, you know, um, it takes a bit to get used to in terms of the format. Cause it's a little weird. You get like a minute to just yammer, but once you get used to it, it's, I find it to be a good way to connect. It's fun. Well, we can test your hypothesis, folks. You've heard the pitch. <laughs> if you want me to do a cameo, you know where you can find me. Um, I mean, don't you get requests from listeners saying they would like you to make a little recording saying happy birthday to somebody? Or No. Don't you ever... Oh, really? No, no, huh. no, no. I've never gotten that. Um, but that's neither here nor there. You and I share what we discovered in the process of, of you interviewing me and then me now interviewing you. Uh, so many commonalities in our, in our history and career, <clears throat> uh, both uh, having been in market research, uh, both uh, being drawn to psychotherapy, psychology, both being drawn to podcasting, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> And um, both being sort of pioneers in, in the way that we approach it. Mm -hmm. And um, so one thing that we had in common was that we were both uh, went through some issues of uh, around ethnicity 
and uh, our family background, and that causes us some pain, some trauma. And uh, you gave me lots of space to go into that on mine. Maybe maybe I took too much. I'm not sure. But um, so let's let's talk about your experience because uh, your father was not was your father is Japanese, mm-hmm. and uh, and a successful business person, I believe. A uh, commercial artist for Boeing. He would interesting make uh, brochures of planes to sell to airlines, you know, or displays, uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And your mother was, uh, was what? (laughs) She was a a daycare. Yeah. A white, uh, European American woman and is, and had a home daycare for many years. Um, and then had some office jobs as well. Yeah. 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 Sounds like my mother as well. Um, Did your mom have a home daycare? No, no, did oh. not have home daycare, but she did. Uh, <clears throat> it's funny when after I went to college, uh, she started being an artist and uh, entering different shows and so on, and uh, and then she became a secretary for uh, at USC for yeah. a professor. So I think in doing that, she felt some uh, kinship to me becoming a psychologist. Yeah. And and uh, because you know she came up in the depression and uh, did not get the the college experience that her intellect definitely would have merited, mm. and and uh, I never felt like I could win an argument with her, mm. you know, <laughs> even after having a PhD and so on, I always felt one down. <clears throat> But enough about me and more, more about you. So what was your experience uh, in terms of, uh, of racism? You've, there were some experiences that you had that you felt like racism was, was at the root of it? Oh, yeah. I still do. Uh, you know, it's hard to misinterpret someone just yelling a racial slur at you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, still occasionally happens. It wasn't that long ago that I was in Seattle and came to a four-way stop. And uh, I thought I got to the four-way stop first, but we were very close anyway. So I went through the intersection and then the car pulled up behind me and... um the woman, young woman, white woman, for the record, jumps out of the car, starts pounding on my window and calls me a chink. Uh, so it's hard to misinterpret that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, throughout my life, uh, uh, names, assumptions, stereotyping, um, discounting, uh, pigeonholing, uh, where are you from? Oh. I'd say, well, I'm from Seattle. No, where are you from? Uh, I'm from fucking Seattle. Uh, yeah. Well, where are your parents from? Spokane, Washington. Uh, no, no. Where's your, where are they from? <laughs> I was like, okay, what about your grandparents? Uh, they're from Eastern Washington. They were born in Eastern Washington. No, no, <laughs> no well, where were, yeah. It's just like, well, okay. Do you want me to give me the whole gene? I, I know what you're asking. My dad is of Japanese descent. Like, and you don't ask white people that. And why are you asking me that? You know, um, you know, the first 50 times I was asked that in my life, it wasn't that big of a deal, but as time goes on, it just aggravates you because yeah. it, it makes me feel like 
I'm a foreigner, you know, and I, and nothing yeah. wrong with being a foreigner, but I'm definitely not a foreigner. <laughs> like my people are from Washington state and have been for over a hundred years. Wow. And my, my white side goes back to the 1600s. So uh, I should be asking you where you're from. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, 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 so this, this notion of otherizing and, and then stereotyping as well, like in the workplace, people will uh, assume that I'm good with technology and uh, math and this kind of stuff, you know, things that you associate with, with Asian Americans. Um, I mean, incidentally, I am uh, okay with technology and math, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But uh, as a therapist, as a person in psychology, I uh, didn't want to be uh, identified that way. You know, I, I yeah. wanted to be identified as someone that was good as a professor and as, as a therapist, because I, I felt like I had worked hard to achieve a certain level of competence and to just be seen as not that because I don't fit the stereotype of a therapist or a professor because I'm yeah. half Japanese. Um, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it hurts and annoys me. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever gone to Japan or, or yeah. have you? Oh, you have. And just once, just once. Yeah. Uh -huh. it, it was a, a pretty amazing experience. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, Japanese American culture is so far afield from J Japanese culture because my ancestors came over over 120 years ago and uh, the language is different. You know, the, yeah. the words that we use um, are a lot different. So uh, I'm the, the place that I feel at, at home is in Hawaii because there's a lot of uh, what we call Hapa, meaning half half East Asian, half white or or half East Asian, half whatever else. Um, when I go to Hawaii, that's where I feel culturally at home. Wow. Wow. I would think that Spokane, uh, wait, Seattle rather, Seattle where you are. Yeah. That, that there would be a large population of Asians there. And, and so mm -hmm. I'm surprised to hear that. I mean, I grew up in L.A. and uh, I always grew up with a lot of uh, respect, I suppose, <laughs> positive stereotypes that I had about Japanese who were gardeners and artistically inclined, it seemed, and clever with their hands. So I had all those stereotypes, but for, but for me, they, they seemed kind of positive. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to not be seen for who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's too bad we both. <laughs> but, you know, those experiences are what make us and toughen us, right? And, and, and allow us to be as empathic as we are because, mm -hmm. you know, because we know what it's like to, to uh, suffer those kinds of slings and arrows, if you will. Mm -hmm. Let's see, so we talked about Oh, you, in a conversation that we had, uh, we haven't had that many conversations, but somehow, oh, it was a question that you had thought you might want to ask me, which was, you know, what are your thoughts about psychology today and where it's going? Mm -hmm. And I picked up from the question that uh, a tone, <laughs> you know, that you weren't happy. Mm -hmm. So, so t let's talk about that. What, what's your feeling about psychology and where it's going today and how it's mm -hmm. evolving? Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's impossible for me to know for sure because I just have anecdotal experience and I guess some research along these lines. But uh, my sense is that our profession is, although growing and which is great, and there's more awareness and culture around us, you know, uh, today it's much more likely you're going to hear someone say that they're going to therapy, a famous person or or not, yeah. than 10, 20 years ago. It was much more shameful and and uh, or avoided completely. So uh, we've succeeded in advocating as a field, you and I and the thousands of others to uh, raise awareness and to reduce stigma. So I think that's all fantastic. Um, there are some side effects to that, like people bastardizing words like narcissism and gaslighting and uh, love bombing and um, uh, trauma bonding. You know, there's a lot of uh, misuse of terms and and a lot of diagnosing from lay people about other lay people. And uh, that is uh, problematic in a lot of ways. And uh, so that's not good. And I'm starting to see some students that have been taught by the internet in terms of what psychology is and i have to deprogram them uh, of of those notions and it's hard because uh, they've been indoctrinated into a mindset about certain constructs in our field so that's not great for, but, for example well narcissism is a big one because uh it's even getting worse by the day um you know there's narcissistic personality disorder there's also a lot of other constructs in our field that we would label as narcissism there's normal narcissism, healthy narcissism, uh, you know, Kohut and other kinds of uh, writers and thinkers. So, you know, I could go on a whole thing about that. But the way that people misuse it today <clears throat> is they basically use the word narcissism as a stand in for a psychopath. And <clears throat> they also uh, will uh, think that any indication of psychopathy or narcissism means that they are a narcissist and they suffer from a personality disorder. Instead of uh, understanding that, you know, all of us are to some extent um, self-serving and will go into denial and are triggered by things. And so there's just, you know, according to some people, literally half of the world suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. And, uh, and it's destructive because one, they're diluting the term and two, they're just uh, uh, labeling someone and rejecting them. You know, it's just like they're rejectable instead of. <clears throat> you know, trying to work with people and trying to understand people anyway. And then if you're the victim of being accused of those kinds of things, like what, what do you say? It's, it's hard to refute those kinds of just attacks. But what I'm worried about in our field is this movement away. You know, you come from humanistic psychology and so do I. And I worry that our field uh, will more and more lose sight of that tradition and not value it because it's not it's not considered cutting edge some people don't consider it to be evidence-based even though it is it it sometimes is equated to like 70s hippie stuff and right uh, right ir irrelevant you know it's it's not cbt it's it's not uh it's not uh, neuroscience you know and um because you know we don't really have uh, your generation is actually uh as you retire and um you know move on from this plane uh, you're the humanistic generation. You were the people that uh, studied it and uh, talked about it and spread the word and did it. And uh, you don't see a lot of young people pioneering in that way. It's not the only tradition that I follow, but it's a major part of the tradition that I follow, not only clinically, but also just in life. The, the, 
the tenets, the philosophy, the mindset, the the love that we give each other, you know, the bonds that we have, um, the goodness, seeing the good in other people um, is, I think, being forgotten. And I worry about that because yeah. I think that's the core of therapy. I think that's, you know, if anything, you know, it, and that's what I tell people. It's like, because they're like, oh, there's all these theories. I'm like, if you learn one thing well, it's humanistic psychology because that you could literally just help you know, 90% of your clients just within that realm. There's so oh. much help that you can give people with, with that, with that form of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what last... do you think? Do you, do you, do you think, do you, do you see uh, those kind of trends or uh, if it is true that we are losing that tradition, do you, is that upsetting? Well, it has been. Uh, and I've, I've sort of had to adjust my, uh, just make adjustments to accommodate, you know, where things were going, like particularly with the advent of uh, positive psychology and, and Seligman, you know, who planted the stake there, which on the one hand sounded good, it had the right ring, but at the same time he was, he seemed to be dissing the whole history, the whole tradition, you know, because and it's clear why he he wanted to create that space because the the big concern was that there wasn't enough it wasn't established with a solid research base but actually there'd been and and i think the positive psychology movement has helped to flesh out because all kinds of people have emerged under that banner who are doing research respectable research for years and years Mm-hmm. And and that banner has brought them forward. So I've had mixed feelings about it, but originally I was I was pretty down down on Seligman and and uh, uh, and and that. Mm-hmm. I think what's what's of more concern to me right now is the juncture that we find ourselves in at the, at a global level. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that are we in the last days or not? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know. Do mm-hmm. uh, you have thoughts? How's your optimism level? Are you able to be uh, long-term optimistic? Or I am of two minds. Um, on one hand, I'm extremely pessimistic because with, for example, climate change, uh, yeah. we've known about the science for decades and decades. And you can make an argument that 20 years ago-ish, the politicians, most of the politicians were finally waking up to the science and realizing the the doom that we are heading towards and uh, around the world. And yet uh, it's only getting worse. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. There are strides, you know, renewables and stuff. But uh, uh, but if you look at the big picture, we're we're not moving away from the doom we're 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 racing ever faster to the doom um what is that doom hard hard to know but uh so on one hand uh because i've been a known i've known the science or it's been you know convinced to convincing to me for 30 years ish maybe longer i mean i grew up in the 70s and 80s when i feel like every other topic we talked about in school was about environmentalism you know because pollution and littering and all this kind of stuff uh-huh. and, 
so I, I grew up uh, just constantly thinking about it and worrying about it. And so um, on one hand, uh, I, you know, so I, I would get my hopes up. I would hear a politician or I'd think, you know, I'd learn about a new advanced with solar technology or investments here. And I'd be like, oh, and then another report would come out and, you know, we, we just had our our most uh, uh, hottest year on record uh, right. uh, overall. Right. So um, and we're heading into an El Nino, which is going to heat up our part of the world even more um for a number of years predict you know as predicted so on one hand i'm i'm demoralized I, I don't know if it's pessimistic but uh you know you just get beaten down for decades you, you get your hopes up you advocate you, you do what you can and um and you just um it, it's demoralizing on the other hand um as a amateur studier of history uh both more recent and and distant uh at any given point, it always feels to the population that things are about to uh, go off the cliff. You know, there have been many uh, points in history in various different societies and right. cultures that that it's like this is the end, and it wasn't the end. You know, we as a as a race, as a you know the human race, we figure out some way of bouncing back or adjusting or. Um, maybe it's a little bit too late. There's a lot of consequences. You could say World War One, World War Two. You know, there's certain events that are tragic and horrific, but uh, we do bounce back. So, with climate change, for example, um, will a billion people die around the planet uh, or more? But we, but we bounce back. Uh, I don't know. Will it be some worse version of our society where there's more? bifurcation between the haves and the have-nots i don't know uh, it, it's hard to tell but in terms of our survival you know i i'd put my money on us still being around in a few hundred years but i don't know okay <laughs> yeah, how do you feel I, about how do you feel about it uh i i uh <clears throat> i'm as concerned about anything as the cultural divide both yes the climate situation for sure because that's such an absolute scientific reality, and then the kind of uh, the the spread of authoritarian thinking and personalities and dominance—that's really got me worried as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they're not unrelated. You know that the harder things, the harder we get pushed by by climate and water issues and all these other issues, the the more likely that it's going to be to exacerbate the dark side of human nature. Yeah. You know, I, I bet you you had a similar thought that when the internet came around and information became democratized, I thought it would eliminate conspiracy theories and science illiteracy you know you have wikipedia anyone could just look up the facts right. it's out there and i just thought this is going to just destroy uh, pseudoscience and nonsense and po politicians who lie because it, it'll be so easy to detect them but it went the opposite direction yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know people... I, I, i'm a reflexively a technophile i get excited by by yeah. technology and all the new toys and so, but I've become more jaded as time has gone by. Um, 
Yeah, so that's where. Yeah, like that's where something I like a, a something like a quarter of Americans believe in uh, some aspect of the conspiracy theory related to QAnon that uh, there's an elite reptile group of people that kill babies and drink their blood. Literally, I mean, a sizable percentage of Americans believe that there's a good chance that that's true. Something along those lines. Yeah. And when I read those stats, I just was just just completely shocked by that yeah. you know it's one thing for a few percentage it's still weird but for like you know one out of five or something like that and i just thought my god like we are a dumb animal <laughs> just that we're just so easily manipulated and uh, gullible uh yeah. it's really upsetting to to see and you gotta figure projecting in the future it, it, it's probably not going to get any better right i think you know where i am is is now is we who have some version of the light need to uh keep doing what we do mm. and trying to uh to keep that light shining and uh, so that's what you and I are devoted to and the and what we're doing mm -hmm. and so yeah. uh, I'm glad to have you in that corner and uh, I appreciate the, the uh, I appreciate your appreciation and uh, and, I, and I appreciate you right back so maybe yeah. this is a place for us to wrap it up yeah, as, as I said in our interview, it's this huge honor to, uh, I mean, really, uh, I was telling my wife uh, that this could be argued like one of the pinnacles of my career to be on your show. Um, I've been listening to it, like I said, for almost two decades, uh, uh, more religiously in the first uh, number of years, the first, I don't know, You're pretty busy years. these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I also work from home. I don't commute. So I, I don't have a, a space to listen to podcasts the way that I used to. Um, but uh, your voice, your humility, your intelligence, your goodness, your warmth, uh, your your literal voice, you know, it's very radio friendly. And, and um, you know, if I might counter your uh, your supervisor or uh, that you had when you were first starting out, I, you know, I don't know what you're like as a therapist, but I would imagine that uh, you were amazingly helpful uh, when you had that career um, because as a listener, um, you know, it, you learn something listening to your podcast, but also it, it could be moving. Uh, it could be soothing. It, um, can stretch our minds uh, as clinicians and as as lay people. So, um, yeah, and I know what it's like to wake up in the morning because you know for the first number of years of my podcast, seven eight years of my podcast, I was losing money doing it. I was just doing it for the love of it every every day. Yeah. And uh, you know, you've been doing it, and, and uh, there are times when you wake up and you're just like, I don't know if I have the energy for this, but but you do it anyway and you find that that inner um uh, power to step into that place to to give people the content that they want and and to um spread you know uh, ideas that are going to be very helpful to people clinically and otherwise so yeah it, it's just a huge honor that um 
honestly that you even know who I am. <laughs> let, <laughs> well, let alone likewise. Let alone, <laughs> let alone that I'm on on your podcast. I remember when I started my podcast, I was the 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 third or fourth psychology podcast uh, uh, in the English speaking world, anyway. And uh, you were already uh, a giant in psychology podcasting in 2008. And uh, I just thought, like, oh, if I could ever um, even come close to Dr. Dave and his achievements and and what he's doing, you know, um, I never did really because I didn't go in the direction that you did. Like I, I tried. There were I tried to get actual guests like you. Uh, there have been times when I would try to get those kinds of authors and whatnot, and they just wouldn't respond to my email and, and oh. probably still still don't. So. Uh, uh, so in some ways, I, I you know, I, I'm still aspiring to 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 get to your level. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm humbled. Um, okay, that's a wrap. <laughs> that's a wrap. It was great to have the opportunity to speak in depth with today's guest, Dr. Kirk Honda, founder and host of the podcast Psychology in Seattle. He interviewed me last week and was very full of praise for my work over the years. We figured out that I'm actually 30 years older, and consequently my own podcast was well established by the time he started out. So perhaps it's not so surprising that he holds me in high regard as a pioneer and one who's been something of a leader in the humanistic psychology movement. I was surprised to learn that he identifies so strongly with humanistic psychology and its values and ideals. I've been particularly impressed by his earnestness and passion. The thing I thought differentiated us is his commercial success. He reports that as of 2023, his podcast and YouTube channel grew to include over 3,000 episodes, 33,000 YouTube subscribers. I was shocked by those numbers. Visiting his site, it was also clear that there's a high degree of engagement with his audience. Initially, I thought maybe he had purchased likes to inflate his numbers. Making money on my podcast was never my original motivation, but it was the driving motivation apparently at the podcaster conferences I attended in my early days. Monetization was the buzzword and continues to be the yardstick as podcasting has matured. Advertisers came swarming like bees to honey, and audience size became a holy grail. So podcasting has become recognized as a new legitimate medium, along with radio, TV, and even news and publishing. But I digress. Back to Kirk. His bachelor's degree was in business, and his first job was in market research, it's no surprise that he would bring a businessman's eye to the bottom line. In fact, after some years of doing psychology in Seattle, he noticed he was running his show at a loss. 
I need to insert here that Kirk is an exceptionally well-trained clinician who has practiced in a wide range of settings and with very diverse populations and also held a variety of leadership roles in the process. He's also very tenacious and an unusually hard worker. So rather than resorting to black hat techniques to inflate his numbers, I discovered that his success is the result of all these factors I've mentioned and his sheer industriousness. He's constantly producing special content to engage his Patreon donors. In addition to his regular podcasts, each week he publishes three hour-long episodes and about a dozen 20-minute videos. Wow, I've never worked that hard. He also refines his approach to really engage his audience, giving them what they want. I'm tempted to use the term shock jock, except that it's too negative and misleading. But he does create controversy, not by deliberately saying shocking things, but by being willing to take a stand based on his values and training. I think often the public perception of psychologists is that we are afraid to come out and say what we really think. Kirk invites his audience to post topics they are curious about, maybe having to do with figures in the news or media. For example, I found an episode he did about actor Will Smith slapping Chris Rock during last year's Oscar ceremony. Now, this is an issue that shocked many of us. And it stimulated Dr. Kirk to do an extensive research review on apologies. And to conclude that the professional literature on that topic was inadequate and to develop his own reasoned schema. So Dr. Kirk, in my view, is doing a fine job of giving away psychology to the people. He's being the people's psychologist. While I was envious of his numbers, I didn't realize it was a mixed bag. When you're willing to make a public stand, often the responses can be hateful, mean, irrational, and even threatening. This is a painful reality that's giving my friend Dr. Kirk pause for thought. I am so happy to have had the opportunity to get to know this talented and gracious colleague and look forward to any ways we might collaborate in the future. Hello, this is Louisa Aznavour from Montreal, Canada. As a seasoned psychologist, to still be captivated while listening to a podcast is so important to me. And Dr. Dave's Shrink Rap Radio podcast stirs my curiosity. The American Psychology Association's award-winning and internationally cherished Dr. Dave generously continues to educate us as a psychologist, humanist, author, and a multifaceted human being. Dr. Dave brings out the best in those being interviewed by genuine interest and sharing personal moments while adding warmth. And we, the listeners, we all benefit. 
I admire Dr. Dave's generosity, making education freely accessible to all layers of society. His podcasts keep us alert and want to have more. It is priceless to learn that Dr. Dave will make his entire collection available well into the future through the nonprofit, the Internet Archive. So, dear fellow listeners, Dr. Dave is making the world a better place, yes? And we can add to his efforts by being his cheerleaders and donating. We need, well, no need, no need actually to get hung up on the donation amount. Hmm? I believe it is the gesture of thank you, Dr. Dave, that matters to him. And saying thank you is so energizing. And now, please push the donate button. Well done. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Louise Osnivore, there in Montreal, Canada. What wonderful joie de vivre comes through your voice. Thank you for all you appreciate about my work and for encouraging other listeners to support it. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to Dr. Kirk Honda for your enthusiastic devotion and for allowing me and my listeners to get to know you and psychology in Seattle. Here's wishing your continued success, and I look forward to any ways we can collaborate in the future. Next week, our guest will be UK writer Tim Lott, reflecting on Alan Watts' mental health and consciousness. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and our precious Earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.